we continue the study of the word of god okay that's what we do for the first text for today we look at galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want okay the other word for sinful nature in the bible is the word flesh okay the flesh and the spirit fight each other see there are a lot of things which we want to do honestly deep inside once we get saved and we can understand the ways of god and uh, grow in the knowledge of god there are so many things which you want to do by the end of the day we look in our list of so many things which you want to do we didn't do most of it because there is something that fights fights us daily constantly until the last day and you would wonder why did god put it that way why couldn't he just get rid of the flesh but then if there are no battles there are no victories and if there are no victories there are no rewards <laughs> so he has allowed it that way that is the one of the fights we fight but like we have heard and learned to understand the principles of the new testament we need to understand the working of god in the old testament like the principles are there in the new testament but the practical life is seen in the old testament unless we really really ask the holy spirit to teach us from the old testament we will not understand okay we see this so the question is how do i do what you want and i want to do this is theory how does theory help me how do i learn this practicals Romans first Corinthians 10 and verse 11 where scripture says about the history of Israel and where it's I didn't give it to you but it says all these things were recorded all these things are there in the bible for whose sake for are these things happened to them to Israel has examples and were written as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of ages has come that's first Corinthians 10:11 Okay, all these things in Israel's history. But the sad part is that in often in churches, the Old Testament is kind of completely avoided. And even we, even I, when I started, you know, we, we prefer to stick to the New Testament and read and study that over and over and over and over and again. All we get is these principles in your head and you don't realize, I don't know how to practically work it out. Okay, and the thing is that If you if you just study if you just read our bibles without studying them and relying on the holy spirit literally the real teacher to give us understanding and how to apply it then the gospel will be of no effect to us as it was to israel so therefore to understand that portion we read in the beginning galatians 5:17 let's turn to a portion in the old testament that's the actual outworking You see the theory is there in the New Testament how does it happen we see in the Old Testament okay in Exodus chapter 17 and verses 8 to 13 The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim Moses said to Joshua choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hills As long as Moses held up his hands Israelites were winning but whenever he lowered his hands the Amalekites were winning when Moses hands grew tired they took a stone put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and Hur held his hands up one on one side one on the other so that his hands remained steady steady until sunset so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword okay And how do we connect this passage in the book of Exodus to the passage in the new covenant is the whole question but unless God shows us we will just read two different passages and never connect it never understand the theory and the practical okay So if you let's before we get into this let's go into the background of what's happening over here okay we understand how God is moving Israel and we see how God is moving us So unless we understand the movement of Israel and where they failed we won't understand what God is planning with us and where we fail where we succeed. 
Remember we saw on Sunday from Exodus 4 verses 22 to 23. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. The first thing God says is to Israel. Now Israel is not one person, though Israel is Jacob as one person. But in Jacob is the entire nation of Israel. Okay, So the whole nation of Israel is seen as one. Israel is my firstborn son. And what does God actually tell Pharaoh? God tells Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go so that they may serve me. They may worship me. They may serve me. But the problem is from the new covenant we know Israel is not God's firstborn. It is Jesus who is Christ's firstborn. Right? Christ is God's firstborn in the flesh. He is the firstborn. But when God looks at Christ, when he says Jesus, he means Jesus and the entire church has one body. So God is telling the same thing over here. Let my son go that he might serve me, worship me. So we know from parallel history, we know Israel were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, Egypt represents the world. Pharaoh was ruling over them. So we know there, in that case, particular case, Pharaoh is a type of the devil. They were set free and they were on the road to the promised land. The promised land is described as a land of milk and honey, oil and wine, corn and figs, pomegranates. It's a whole nine yards description about what the land is like. So what does that land mean? The land is talking about what is the life in Christ. Everything what in the flesh Canaan was or to the physical eye Canaan was even more spiritually what the life of Christ is. They were called out of Egypt to Canaan. Now don't mistake that Canaan is heaven. Canaan is not heaven. Because in heaven there are no battles. In Canaan there are so many battles waiting for us. Okay, so Canaan is not heaven. Okay, so what is Canaan now? Canaan now is the life of Christ that is offered to us. The spirit-filled, spirit-led life that is offered. But to reach that point... After leaving Egypt, they had to go through the wilderness. And we all know this. Once we got saved, we were very excited like the children of Israel. But after some time, it went. Like, you know, everybody who gets married is John, Roshan and Tabitha are in there, no? Oh, the honeymoon will not last. Marriage is not a long honeymoon. No, it will stop. And after the reality strikes. Okay. So in between, God has put this stage in our lives, which is called the wilderness. The wilderness is the platform where we learn the steps to victory. We learn the steps to victory. How to possess the life in Christ. But like Israel got bogged down in the desert, so do Christians get bogged down in the wilderness. And finally, they settle down for the status quo, that familiar life of the wilderness. In wilderness, were they taken care of? Yes, they were taken care of. They had food, they had water, they had clothes, they had footwear, they had protection. But it was always familiar. You never had to ask an Israelite what you going to eat on Monday. What's the menu for Monday? Manna. What's the menu for Tuesday? Manna. What is the menu for Wednesday? Manna. What are you going to wear tomorrow? What are you going to wear day after tomorrow? Same. What are you going to drink on Monday? Same thing. You know, has honestly think back and think, haven't our Christian lives become so routine and familiar? And that's not the life that was promised. You don't see the book of Acts, life as routine and familiar. Every day was a challenge. Every day was exciting. You got beaten up and you shouted also. There was incredible victory. Every day was a day of victory. Every day was a day of battle. Every day you were possessing something new. But what happens is in the wilderness, after some time, Israel gets stuck down and they decide, that's fine. Okay, remember, the entire relationship with God is considered a marriage. So, a marriage also is supposed to be like that. Instead, we settle down for the familiar. But God says, no, 
That's where Paul says marriage is a mystery. And marriages are not supposed to be the status quo. It is supposed to be like a life in Christ Jesus. But let's leave marriage aside. Otherwise, all these young ones will start thinking about marriage. So the Bible is all about life, about changing life from the monotonous to the momentous. It's not monotonous. It is supposed to be momentous. It is not supposed to be mediocre. It is to be studded with spiritual battles and victories and failures also. Defeats but victories. So let's learn from the lessons of Israel. Because the problem is, the, what is true about Israel is true about us too. Many come to Christ like Israel came. Why? Israel came to listen to Moses. And Moses' first thing is that God will set you free from this trouble in this land. And many come to Christ because of the trouble in their lives, which is okay. Some, but today, are fascinated by the message. But they are not interested in leaving Egypt. Okay? And to the third group, okay, they must be promised at least some, or if not, all the goodies that is available in the world, if you want them to offer follow Christ. So we come to Christ for various reasons. People come into the kingdom of God for different reasons. But God accepts anyone who comes to him. But like I said, he leads them all in the same way or direction. First into the wilderness. And that is where the first test comes. So let's go to Genesis, Exodus 17 verses 1 to 3. What is the first test? The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the law to the test? What is the first test? You come to a barren, desolate place. Like I said, after the initial excitement of salvation, everyone reaches this place. Everything depends upon what you do in this place. You see, unlike Israel in the desert, there is nothing stopping you and me from going back to the world. There, there was a physical barrier. He had shut the Red Sea behind them. There is nothing shut behind us. If you want to go back, you can go back now. That's why this is spiritual, that was physical. So it's more dangerous for us than for them. There God physically blocked the road. Here God is not blocking anybody. Okay, so they have come to a desert place, a desolate place, a dry place. And the first thing is that they have no water and they are crying. God has provision here. God has provision here. Okay, but we have to choose to partake of God's provision. In verses 4 to 6, we will see God's provision here. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you stuck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Are you getting the picture? God said, you don't worry. I have provision. When people are thirsty, I have provision. The provision is, you go before the people. You take that staff which I gave you. And there is this rock there. You strike the rock. You have to read scripture very, very carefully, okay? Very carefully you have to read, okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul will tell us, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Okay? Understand this. So the people are thirsty, and they are crying out for to quench their thirst, and God said, you don't worry, I have a plan for me, for you. The plan is that, he says, you go before the people. Now listen carefully exactly what God says. God says, you come stand before the rock. Who will stand before you? No. Go back to that old portion. You didn't read carefully. That's why I said you have to read carefully. I will stand there before you by the rock. They won't see me. They will only see your hands. 
When Christ is crucified on the cross, they will only see the hands of man. They will not know he was crucified by the will of the Father. They won't see me. But you are not the one who is striking the rock. It's your hands the people will see. I will strike my son. I will strike this. I will use the hands of flesh to strike my son. But it will be I. I will stand before you. Nobody will know. You know, I know. And you have to read the book of Acts. And what Peter will say, it's the will of God that God handed his son over to the hands of men to be crucified. It was God. Okay, understand that. So you see Jesus is the rock. This is the provision God has made. And he was smitten. When he was smitten, two things happened. John chapter 19 and verse 34 will say, let not hear it, they said, okay, okay, 34, not, not, not 24, 34, give me 34. Where do you know the, the soldier comes and pierces his side? Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. When Jesus was smitten, when Jesus was smitten, what came is blood and water. Most of the time, we know how to appropriate the flow of the blood. We cry, we repent and ask for forgiveness. He cleanses us with the blood. But we do not know how to appropriate the water. But from his side flowed both blood and water. The same John later will write in his epistle in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, he will say, this is the one who came by water and blood. Now he reverses the order. He came by water and blood. He came in the power of the spirit. And in blood, Jesus Christ, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three things that testify. What is it? The spirit, the water and the blood. The spirit testifies to the water and the blood. We have to learn to Appropriate the water too. Appropriating the blood alone is not enough. So Jesus will say in John chapter 7 and verse 37, he will say, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. God's provision for our victory is the Holy Spirit. He says, if anyone is thirsty, Come to me. Meaning you will not receive the spirit unless you come to Christ. You cannot receive the spirit that quenches your eternal thirst anywhere outside of Christ. So Jesus says you have to come. The question is, but are you thirsty? Israel was physically thirsty that day. They were not really thirsty for God. You can mistake your thirst. One evangelist was once traveling in a flight long, long back. And you know in international flights, this, they come and offer you liquor, alcohol. So uh, he said, uh, when the air hostess came, he said, no, I had a drink 20 years ago and after that I don't thirst anymore. And she said, wow, that is interesting. Can you tell me about it? He said, okay, you finish serving all the others, come back to me and I will explain to you. So she finished everything. She came and sat next to him and he said, you know what? 20 years ago, I drank from the rock of ages and gave her the gospel. And he said, after that, I've never thirsted anymore. The first condition to moving to a victorious life is unlike Israel at Rephidim, stop complaining and start drinking of God's provision. That is his spirit. That is what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, 4, 13 and 14, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Now you need to look at this and ask, is this true in my life? There are two waters being offered over there. One is the water from Jacob's well. The other is the water Jesus offers. One is the water the world offers, the life the world offers. The other is the life Christ offers. And if we have really not drunk from this, we will forever crave after the things that the flesh needs. 
The reason is not that the flesh, the problem is not so much with the flesh. The problem is because we have not really quenched our thirst there. Do you want to drink from Jacob's well or the water Christ offers? Do you want to live the life in the flesh or the life Christ offers is the simple question. The question is not whether you are empty. The question is not whether you are unhappy. The question is not whether you are suffering. The question is not whether you are miserable. Jesus did not ask any of this question. This is the question, only question he asks is, are you thirsty? You could confuse your emptiness for thirst. No. The children of Israel were empty, but they were not really thirsty for God. You may confuse your misery as thirst. You know, may not be at all. You may confuse your suffering as thirst. No, you are it's not. The only question God is saying is, are you thirsty? And the problem is if we are not thirsty, God's great purpose for every individual will fail. It does not fail because God's provision was not there. It fails because we are not thirsty. What was God's great purpose for Israel? So we understand our purpose. Exodus 13 and verses 3 to 8. And Moses said to the people, commemorate this day. You have to celebrate this day. Okay? The day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. He says, take yeast out. Today in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land is for to give it to your forefathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You have to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast. On the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you. Nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. Did you get it? We didn't get it. Where do we celebrate this? Where do we celebrate this? We need to look at it. Go back to the beginning again. This day he says, today in the month of, okay. Okay, he says, you're coming out. Yeah, okay, come to verse 5. When the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan. That's the only place where you can really rejoice and celebrate. You cannot celebrate in the wilderness. Getting the picture? Think about this. If you are in the wilderness, Emanuela says, Daddy, tomorrow, Vijay, Justin, Emanuela, and Abigail are traveling with the Israelite group, part of Israel, in the wilderness. Tomorrow is Emanuela's birthday. And uh, Emanuela, is Emanuela excited? No. Why? Because she knew last year for the birthday also, it was manna cake. The previous year also it was manna cake. You got us, you wore the same dress and the same shoes. You call all your friends, they'll say, yeah, it's manna. What is it, boiled or fried? <laughs> One week later is Vijay and Justin's wedding anniversary. Is Justin excited? No. <laughs> He's not going to get her a new dress. He's not going to go give go her. What are you going to eat? The same old manna. Drink the same water. Wear the same clothes. You cannot celebrate in the wilderness. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons a generation falls away from God is because the parents have not actually entered into Canaan. So they see no excitement in this Christian life. Understand that. They look at the same old monotonous thing. My world is much more interesting. They don't see any excitement for the parents in their walk with Christ because the parents are also in the wilderness. So what's a big deal? Okay, go to church again. Another more, one more Bible study. They'll sit there like this. They don't see we are not excited about Christ. It's no excitement. They don't see we are excited with this. They don't see we are excited about Christ, the person. They don't see it. God said, he told them, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm giving you all these laws, all these rules. I'm telling you right now. But you will not celebrate in the wilderness. You will celebrate it when? The land of the Canaanites. That life. When you enter into that victorious life of Jesus Christ, celebration begins. Okay. So God said, I am bringing you, in verse 3, he will say, I am bringing you out. I am bringing you out. Okay. 
out of Egypt. And in verse 5, he will say, I am bringing you in. He has to bring us out and bring us in. In between there is this place. Don't get stuck there. We all got stuck there for years. Okay. So there is no much celebration in the wilderness. No much celebration in the wilderness. A three day journey. Remember, Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go that they may make a three day journey into the wilderness to that Mount Horeb. Okay? And let them celebrate. The three day journey became a three month journey. By the time they reached that place in Exodus 19 verses 1 and 2, three months are over. How many days it was supposed to be? Three days. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. How many months? It's same thing. You don't, this is, you have to understand fundamental truths in the Bible. When did Paul Hear from God on the third day of his salvation. God said, behold, that man is praying. Ananias, go lay your hands upon him. He is a chosen vessel. He's going to start my work on the third day. He did not waste three months. He did not waste 40 years. He heard on the third day. Okay. So Paul in the Bible, in the new covenant, is a sign of an overcomer who understood him saying, I don't have to waste my time to understand and appropriate this life Jesus is offering. There, it took three months for them to reach that place where they were supposed to have that encounter with the living God. And then, from there, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. 1, verse 2. Deuteronomy 1, verse 2. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, bound mind, sir. How many days is from that mountain to Kadesh Barnea, the border of Canaan? How many days? 11 days. That's all. How many days? 11 days. 3 days to Mount Sinai. 11 days to enter into the and start your battle in the promise. That's all it should have taken. 2 weeks. 2 weeks. For all of Israel. We are talking about we, we are talking about physical actual movement. 2 weeks. Instead they took 2 years. Instead of 2 weeks they took Two years to reach Kadeshvarnia. Not two weeks. Two years. And then wandered for 38 years. Deuteronomy 2 verse 14. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadeshvarnia until we crossed. How many years? 38 years. That is why, like I said, there's only two places in the entire Bible where the number 38 is used. One is this. And the other is the pool at Bethsaida, where there is a handicapped man lying there for 38 years. So Jesus checks, 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 checks. It says, one fellow with 38. He goes, looks to him and says, do you want to get well? Because he symbolizes Israel. You could have entered in the promised land yesterday. You've been stuck there for 38 years. Do you want to get well? His God is for you. His plans are for you. His spirit is for you. His son is for you. Everything of God is for you to enter into that life. Do you want to get well or you want to make excuses? Procrastination. We fail to persist the life of Christ, which is our inheritance here. Here, not there. Here, like Israel, fail to persist the promised land. So where was the major stumbling block? They did not make use of God's provision. And what was God's provision? That's what we saw in Exodus 17 verses 4 to 6. Did they drink of that water? Yes, they did. Did it bring any difference to them? No. Didn't bring any difference to them. In the same way, hearing the theology of the Holy Spirit can do no difference to anyone seated here. The question is, it's not, are we thirsty? The question is, are we thirsty for Christ? That's the question. Are we thirsty? Are we really thirsty for Christ? We are thirsty. We are thirsty for many different things. But are we thirsty for Christ? Jesus said something. He said, when you drink of this water, his spirit, you will thirst no more. Meaning, when you drink of that spirit which he's offering, you lose your thirst for the things of this world. If that hasn't happened, we haven't really drunk. 
And if that is not happening, we really are not thirsty. That's why Jesus said, not if you are miserable, not if you are suffering, not if you are upset, not if you have family problems. He said, if you are thirsty, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And how does the Bible end? Revelation 22 finally end in verse 17. What does it say in verse 17, 22 verse The spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take freely the gift of the water. Why has the book of Revelation, which is in the future, end, being shown here? And when it is shown here with the spirit, why is the bride added? Because the overcomers who are the bride are the ones who quench their thirst in the spirit. That's why the bride comes into the picture. Who is the bride? The bride is the one who was thirsty for Christ and not for anything else. And because she kept on partaking of Christ, she lost her thirst for all other things. And that's what God is talking about over here. See, we can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can take it. And we can take it and use it to feed our flesh. If we do that, we too will fail like Israel failed in the desert. Okay, you have to look at the progression of the events. You have to look at it. Exodus 17 will give you the key. They are thirsty. This is the solution. The rock is split. The water comes. They quench their thirst immediately. Immediately, it is written in Exodus 17 and verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked Israel at Rephidim. Immediately. Till verse 7 is the quenching of the thirst, the water, the rock being split, everything. Verse 8 says, the Amalekites came and attacked immediately them at Rephidim. Who is Amalek? Genesis 36, 12 will tell us who is Amalek. Esau's son Eliphaz also had a concubine named Timnah who bore him Amalek. Who is Amalek? Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And who was Esau? Who was Esau? Esau is the one who sold the spiritual for the carnal. Who sold out the spiritual for the flesh. The birthright for a pot of stew. And in Hebrews 12 verse 16, God calls him, see that no one is sexually immoral or is Godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Getting the picture? So who is Esau? Who is Amalek? Amalek is the flesh. Amalek is the flesh who will sell out the spiritual to satisfy the flesh. And in Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, God has declared perpetual battle with Esau. It says, the oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, that is again Esau, may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people all Always under the wrath of the Lord. Who are Amalekites? Who are Edomites? Who are Esauites? They are always under the wrath of God. God says, I'm never pleased with the flesh. Never ever will be. And in Exodus 17, verse 16, at the end of that battle, God will say, he said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. He says this battle with the flesh will never cease. God will never have a truce with the flesh. There will be never a truce with the flesh. He says the spirit and the flesh are contrary to each other. So what does Amalek represent? Amalek represents the enemy within. What is that? Our flesh. We have three enemies, you know. Two are outside. One is, one is, one is inside and Two are outside. The one inside is Amalek. 
That's what Romans 6, 8, verses 6 and 7 says. The mind of the sinful man or KJV, carnal man, the fleshly man is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So, you need to realize, inside us, our flesh, the old man, it has a mind. It has a mind of its own. It has eyes of its own. It has ears of its own. It has nose of its own. It has a tongue of its own. It has an entire body of flesh of its own. There are two people living inside you and me. One is the body of the spirit. The other is the body of the flesh. The body of flesh has everything. It's got a mind. It's got eyes. It's got ears. It's got nose. It's got a tongue. Everything. That's why the spirit says those who have ears, let them hear. Meaning don't hear with your carnal ears. Do not see with your carnal eyes. Do not smell like with the carnal nostrils. Do not speak with the carnal tongue. Because the flesh has a mind of its own. And to be carnally minded, scripture says, is death. So Amalekites, we all have an Amalek inside us. That's what Genesis, sorry, Galatians 5.17 actually means. It says the flesh lusts against the spirit of God. My flesh hates the spirit of God. And my, the Holy Spirit Hates my flesh. It's very difficult to accept that fact, right? That the Holy Spirit hates the flesh in us. And the flesh hates the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So my flesh, the Amalek, will fight the Holy Spirit. So as soon as Israel has drunk of the water at Rephidim, who came to fight? The Amalekites came to fight. How does the flesh fight the purpose of God in your and my life? Answer, watch the Amalekite. Watch the study, the Old Testament and watch the Amalekite because that is exactly the way your flesh will fight the Spirit of God in you. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. How does he do? What does it mean? He says he attacked from behind the weakest and the most tired. What does it mean? Watch out when you are weak and when you are tired. Watch out when you are weak and when you are tired, that's one of the reasons we tell you honestly, Saturdays is not meant to sit up until early morning and play games. It's the time to rest because otherwise when you come on Sunday, when the time for the word comes, you nod off. Why? Because you're weak. You have to fight your flesh and all these things you have. When you're weak and tired, that is when your flesh will overpower you. will overpower you. When you're weak and tired. The flesh will overpower you. Because Amalek attacked Israel from the rear, the stragglers, the weak ones, and they attacked them. What does that mean? It means we all have our weak areas also. We all have weak areas. For Saul, it was his anger. For Samson and David, it was lust. For Abraham and Jacob, it was fear. For many, it is covetousness. We don't know. Each one has to know what is my weak area. You may be strong in one area, but weak in another. And the Amalekites or your flesh will attack you at our weak points so that we do not enter into Canaan, the life promised by God. Let me ask you this question. Why was the kingdom taken away from King Saul? First Samuel chapter 28 words, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You were anointed to be king. And I had given you the promise, if you walk under an anointing and obey the voice of the Lord completely, you will always have a descendant who will sit on the throne and the throne will be forever. But you had one issue, you could never overcome your flesh. Therefore, you will never reign. 
the kingdom has been taken away. It's the same thing God is telling his children. If you don't overcome your flesh, you will never reign in eternity. The kingdom will be taken away from you. So God will say, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. These are the works of the flesh. And I'm telling you over and over again, Paul will write practically in every epistle, if you live in this manner, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This man was anointed. This man was anointed. So what does the new covenant say in Romans 8.13? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Saul was chosen. Saul was anointed. Saul was mighty. Saul died. Why? Ultimately, he lived according to the flesh. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's simple. So if we don't really closely study the Old Testament patterns, we really will not understand what are these doctrines of the new covenant. Now we are not talking about the other two enemies here at all. One is the world, that is Egypt, and the other is the devil. They are outside. We are only talking about the internal enemy, the Amalek, the flesh, because we are talking about an overflow of the Holy Spirit this year. You want the overflow of the Holy Spirit this year? You will have to fight Amalek every day. We will have to fight Amalek every day. And about Amalek, the reason God hated Amalek because Amalek is also a descendant of Esau. Already he hates Esau. But Esau and Jacob came out of the same mother, out of the same womb. Came out of the... It's Rebecca's twins. And the elder one is Esau. And the younger one is Israel. So the elder one, who is it? Amalek in me, who was born before I was born again. He was born before I was born again. And then when I was born again, Israel was formed in me. And God says, I hate Esau. I love Jacob. And I will be at war with Esau from generation to generation to generation because what is the intention of Esau's heart to destroy Jacob? But he wants the blessings, but he wants the blessings to use it on the flesh. He's not interested in the thing, in the, in the ways of God, the purpose of God, the glory of God. He's interested in the anointing of God to spend it on the flesh. That's what we have to be very, very careful. So God made a proclamation to Rebecca, the elder will serve the younger. Meaning, the spirit born has to rule over the one that is born in the flesh. So how do you subdue the flesh? We'll say it is written, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Yeah, that's doctrine. How do you do it? No, Paul said, I die daily. Well, did you try daily how to die? The problem is new covenant doctrines are very powerful if you understand it's outworking from the old covenant. These are all doctrines, very powerful in itself. But how do we understand practically how does this work out? So learn the spiritual truth of how to demolish Amalek from the Old Testament. Exodus 17 verses 9 to 12. Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Har went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone, put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Har supported his hands. One on one side and the other on the other side and the hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So we look at here. First go to verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some men, go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. First thing he says that I will go to the highest place, physically highest place with the anointed rod of God. What does it mean? It means Psalm 138 verse 2. I will worship towards your holy temple, praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Lord, in my life I will always choose a point where your anointed word is above everything I see and experience. 
I'll keep your word above everything. That's the first step. That's why God asked the second question to Adam. Who told you? You didn't exalt my word. You exalted somebody else's opinion about my word. You didn't exalt my word. Do you exalt my word? First thing Moses says is, I will exalt your word, your anointed word above everything else. He tells Joshua, you go fight. Now there is a play over here. Moses is telling Joshua, so we need to understand something God is telling. Meaning, Yeshua, our Yeshua is the one who fights. We can never fight this flesh. We can never fight any spiritual battle and win. Christ has to fight for us. That's why scripture says the battle belongs to the Lord. But the problem is, if you go back to verse 9, the problem here is, if Joshua has to go and fight, you and I have to lift the word of God above every situation. If Christ has to fight for you and me, you have to lift his word above every situation. Don't keep the word down and your feelings up and say, Christ, fight for me. He says, I don't do that. I don't do that. I will not do that. I don't fight your battles for your flesh. I fight where my word is lifted above every situation. We want Christ to fight. But remember, victory is given only in Christ. Everything is only in Christ. Verses 10 and 11. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. What does that mean? It means your battle is won in your prayer closet but it is experienced in your daily life. Your battle is won in your prayer closet, but it is experienced in your daily life. Why do we fail our daily battles at school or classroom or office or home? It's because our prayer closet, hands are not lifted up. The word of God is not magnified. The battle is, the victory is being experienced in the valley because up there, away from the sight of man on the top of the mountain, the hands are lifted up. If you win in your prayer closet, you will experience your victory in your daily life. It, it has to be won in the prayer closet. To be experienced in your daily life. If you haven't bound the devouring lion, the lion who wants to devour in your prayer closet... Then in your daily life, when you are thrown into the den of lions, you will be just mincemeat for him. But if you have already won him in your prayer closet, day after day, week after week, month after month, when you are thrown into the den of lions, the lions can't do anything because you already overcome him in the prayer closet. Daniel had already overcome him all the days of his life. Therefore, he experienced it even in the den. But remember... Holding up the word of God in all situations can be very tiring. Very, very tiring. That is where verses 12 and 13 come. Moses' hands became heavy. It became heavy. What is he holding up? He's holding up, Lord, by faith I lift your word up. You promised us victory. I'm lifting your word above all my situation. It can be very tiring. Then who comes? Aaron and her supported his hands. Who supported his hands? Aaron and her supported his hands. So what does that mean? Aaron we know is the high priest. And the primary purpose of the high priest is to intercede, to pray. And her means white or purity or righteousness. You getting the picture? When you have Purity and prayer. When you have righteousness and fervent prayer, the righteous, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What does her mean? It's purity. Righteous. What does Aaron signify? Intercession. So when there is purity and intercession, when they come together, 
and the word of God is lifted up, Joshua will always win down in the valley. Jesus will always bring victory. So you have to see a strange sight on the mountain. Moses is holding up the rod of God. Aaron is holding up one hand and her is holding up the other hand. So God says, when you lift up my word in purity and in prayer, Christ will always bring victory into your lives. In verse 13, scripture says, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. What does it mean? Christ will enable you to defeat your flesh every time. Our internal enemy. There is no other way you can defeat your flesh. You have to fight this battle and you have to fight this battle daily and daily you have to win this battle because the spirit and the flesh are at enmity with each other. And God says, this is the way they won. This is the way you win. There is no other way. But always remember, you can't defeat the flesh, I can't defeat flesh. Only our heavenly Joshua can defeat the flesh. There are a lot of examples in our history, our history or our civilization, where you see this entire monastic, monastic orders in every religion is basically against the flesh, to fight this flesh. So people separate and shut themselves in these monasteries or in our Hinduism you will see sages will go to the Himalayas and sit in tapas and all. What is basically to fight the flesh? Does it work? Vishwamitra, how many years of tapas and comes for there? One dance, gone. (laughs) Finished. You cannot win over your flesh in any of these methods. You can't. You know that sage who cursed poor Shakuntala? Right? You did not take care of me. You are coming after tapas. And you are more worried this girl was thinking about a boyfriend and you cursed her. Do you see? It's all the flesh will always overcome. You can never defeat the flesh in your own strength because enemy's kingdom is never divided. How do you overcome the flesh with flesh? Tell me. How do you overcome the flesh with no, there's so many people think self-control. They're walking around inside, they're like a volcano. And God is not looking at your outside, how we are walking around with so much self-control. He's looking at your heart and say, boy, that guy, even I'm staying away from him. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Huh? Like I said two Sundays back, what's your name? Mercy. And what does the Lord say? Lord have mercy. <laughs> okay. You cannot win this on your own. Only Christ can bring victory. But for Christ to win the victory, he has said these two things. You need to search for what? Purity, holiness, righteousness. That's why God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. That's why for the man of flesh, prayer is the most difficult thing. Meditating upon the word is the most difficult thing. Why? Because your flesh. Why do you think these kids are nodding off? They are brought here because some of them have no choice. They come. They have to be, they have to come. Oh, tomorrow is a holiday. They can even say tomorrow there is school. There is no school. But why do they nod off? With the word. Because it's their flesh. It's their flesh. Everybody is flesh. The flesh fights the word of God and the spirit of God because they think, they know, the flesh knows this is both spirit. Jesus did not say my word is letters. He says my word is spirit and life. My word is spirit. And Paul will, did not say pray. He says pray in the spirit. Prayer is a spiritual activity and the flesh hates it. The flesh doesn't mind praying these very wonderful prayers where we see in these invocations for the presidential inauguration. Oh, like like laminated sheets, they will read, oh, mighty God, all that. That is not prayer. Jesus said, don't pray like that. I wish one of them had come without a paper and asked, Holy Spirit, speak through me, and God would have spoken. That would have been a genuine invocation. The other prayer you can pray, any number, you ask the Pharisees, they could pray. In every religion they can keep on chanting, 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 chanting. Jesus said, don't chant like that. 
Because prayer is a spiritual activity. Christians can chant better than the others. He says, no, it's a spiritual activity. But for that spiritual activity, it is difficult because the flesh will fight it. It will fight it. So the truth of Exodus 17, 13, that Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, you see in the new covenant in Romans 7, 23 and 24. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He's talking, in this body of flesh, I'm always becoming captive. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? And verse 25 will say, Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, through Yeshua. Thanks, I thank God, through Jesus Christ. We don't get this, our problem is we don't get this. Let me explain to you, let me try to put it across this way. The way to Christ is not through holiness. The way to Christ is not through the way of righteousness. Christ is the way to holiness. Christ is the way to righteousness. Now what we do is that we also fall into the trap of religion. We try to be more and more holy, hoping that we can become like Christ. God says you never will be. Never will be. You have to approach Christ and he will make you holy. You have to approach Christ, he will make you righteous. You have to approach Christ for anything for God to do. That is why Jesus said, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who is weary, come to me. Anyone who is burdened, come to me. There's no other way. There's no other way. We have to go to Christ for everything. And the flesh hates it because flesh is independent. The flesh is of the devil. And he hates being dependent on Christ. That's why spirit we have to make. So what does James 5, 16 to 17 say? Elijah. Okay, here. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Put it together. Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. Flesh like us. But his prayer was very effective. Why? He was a righteous man and a praying man. He was a her and an Aaron combined. And what did he do? He always lifted up the word of God above his own situations. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Comes before King Ahab and says, until the word of the Lord, the Lord before whom I stand, until the word of the Lord proceeds from my mouth, it will not rain. Can you see? When he looks, everything is green. It's been probably raining till last evening. But he's saying, I heard and I'm proclaiming the word of God about what I feel in my flesh. It will not rain from today. From now, until God speaks to me again, it will not rain. What is he doing? He has lifted up the word of God above all his situations to he prays his righteous. And you will see, it does not rain. And scripture says, it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then verse 18, he prayed again. Three and a half years later, God said, now you go pray again. Mount Carmel, he prays again. And rain comes. If he looks with his eyes, there is nothing. Seven times his servant comes back and says, I see nothing. He says, you go back. He doesn't lift his head. His head is on the ground between his knees. He's praying. He says, I hear, I see. You go see again. And he finally comes back and says, I see a hand, small cloud like a hand rising. He gets up and he tells Ahab, he saw a small cloud. I'm telling you, thunder and cyclone is coming. Run. Do you see how he won his battle? He overcame through Christ. Remember, we have to cross the desert and enter into the promised land to taste the very life of Christ. Very life of Christ. We are still often caught, still in the wilderness. And it's become routine for us and we have lost the taste for everything else. And like the Israelites, because 
there is no Moses watching over you. You quietly go back to Egypt, eat some garlic, some leek, some mutton, some fish and come back and eat manna again. Sundays you come and sit there, I like manna. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Manna is so good, manna is so good. But all week you've been eating Egyptian food. That's our problem. Because like them, we don't say it. But we live it out. We are tired of this manna. But we even haven't fought the other battles. The desert is where God teaches us to fight our flesh. As I close, Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, 4, 5, 5, 6. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Again, the things he says who has the seven spirits of God. Again, next one. Seven lambs which are the seven spirits of God. Again. And I looked, behold, and the midst of the elders stood, okay, and when you come to that, are the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God. Meaning the sevenfold spirit which rested upon Jesus. We saw it from Isaiah 11. The Holy Spirit is sevenfold in his working. The devil is a duplicator. He's an imitator. He's a imitator. He imitates everything of God. He has got nothing original. That is why you have to be original in your dressing. Just don't imitate what you see on TV. Why don't you design something of your own? Let people laugh. Because God is original. And you say, I'm God's child. I'm going to design something of my own. The devil duplicates. Listen to how the devil duplicates. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. The Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations. He says, your battle in the wilderness is something else. Your battle in the promised land is something completely different. That's the enemy that is outside of you. This is where you fight the devil. The devil also has arranged his army into sevenfold groupings of demons. Different fights. You have to win this seven to possess the entire life of Christ to be declared an overcomer before his throne one day. But you cannot unless you have defeated and learned how, not defeated, learned how to defeat Amalek in the wilderness. If you haven't learned how to defeat Amalek in the wilderness... You will not survive in the promised land. You will not survive in the promised land. You will not be able to experience the life Jesus came to give us. He says, I have come to give you life. Life in abundance. It's an overcoming life. That's why we read the book of Acts and look at their life and say, wow. That is life. That is life. When the spirit came, they stood up. They were beaten, they were flogged, they were executed. Nothing made any difference because they had a life that overcame. Because first they overcame the flesh, then they overcame the devil. And they overcame the world. So run your race. It's a very serious race which the father has put everyone into it because he wants every child to be promoted, every child to be glorified on that day. Amen? Shall we pray? Father, we just thank you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you are interested in our victory more than we are. Father, I pray this year you will create that thirst and that hunger in us. That we will really thirst after you and things that pertain to you. That we will drink of your spirit that truly we will lose the thirst to drink from Jacob's well. The water that can never quench. The water of this world can never quench because we have put eternity in our hearts. Help us to drink from that eternal fountain and to be satisfied that we lose this appetite for this world, for the gratification of this flesh, so that we can enter into a different dimension and start different battles so that you may have the glory 
and the joy of seeing your children being victorious in the spiritual battles. As fathers on earth, show off the trophies the children bring from the football field or the sports field. You, the father, also glorifies, is glorified and rejoices when you see even the little ones, your little ones and older ones win their battles on the spiritual battlefield. Help us to bring you that joy, Lord, where we overcome Amalek and we overcome the sevenfold spirit that fights us from possessing the life of Christ. That victorious life. Create us in that thirst. Quench that thirst. And teach us. And empower us. How to live this life Lord. As we go back home. I pray Lord. You reach each one home safely. Let your words continue to bring forth life in us. Through this day. Through this night. Through this week. Thank you Father. Thank you. For in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.